You're listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, May 31st, 2006. This is your host, Stephen Novella, president of the New England Skeptical Society. And joining me this week are the skeptical rogues, Perry DeAngelis. Right. Jay Novella. Hey, what's up, guys? Rebecca Watson. Hey, everybody. And Bob Novella. Good evening. Perry, welcome back from Alaska. Yes, I'm back now. Perry, you're brimming with energy. Uh, How was your trip? It's fine. I uh, kept a lookout for any aromatherapy salesmen or things that accosted Bob on his trip, but uh, there were none such on my wow. boat. The uh, the median age, you know, for an Alaska trip is considerably higher than a Caribbean trip. So there were some hot babes there, huh? Uh, in Wong with walkers. Yeah. Bob has been to uh, both, so you can probably do the comparison, Bob. But I certainly noticed it was a considerably more elderly crowd. So, Bob, you were you went to the Caribbean and to Alaska. Do you remember yes. there being crazy salespeople in, on your Alaska cruise also? Oh yeah, they had they had bunch they had a bunch of that uh, that baloney on both cruises. So I'm kind of surprised you didn't. No, not I, I really did not. Some couple of cooking demonstrations, you know. Perry, maybe they saw you coming. Dance lessons, and they were like, "This guy is you can't bullshit this guy." <laughs> I went to a movie trivia game, you know, <laughs> bingo. But it was a pseudoscience-free trip, though. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> yeah. You went to Alaska to play animal. bingo. I did indeed. I almost won too, but not quite. That sounds like wow. the shittiest vacation I've ever heard of. In my life. <laughs> oh, it was Seriously. awesome. I went to Alaska and almost won at bingo. <laughs> yeah, it was awesome. Ain't that right, Granny? I had a very good time. Now, in the news this week, the first news item is the fact that the Skeptics Guide Forum is now open. After a long delay, we finally have our message board, board online. People are already signing up and sending messages, and the lively discussion has begun. So just go to our homepage, theskepticsguide.org, and there's a link to the message board from there. Sign up and, and start taking part in the discussion. Or else. <laughs> <laughs> the second news item uh, is from a couple of weeks ago. The Pentagon has made officially public some new 9-11 footage of Flight 77 crashing into the Pentagon. Fabricated. Now, this uh, this footage, I mean, it's a little anticlimactic in that this footage was already, some frames were already released, and um, this footage was already leaked on the Internet, so it had already made its rounds among the conspiracy theorists. So it really hasn't changed the landscape of the 9-11 conspiracy nuts. But it does show from, I believe, um, the parking lot, the uh, one wall of the Pentagon, and really on the far right side in the, of the, the camera view, you can see just a blur, just a streak come in from the outside, and then the explosion, which is, which is huge. Steve, what I thought was a little odd, I'm not going to bring up the big conspiracy theory crap, but it just seemed a little odd to me that that plane looked to be like within 10 feet of the ground, coming in very horizontally. It actually hit the ground before it hit the Pentagon. Uh, it came in very low. I guess the pilot was aiming for the base of the Pentagon. Don't forget, the pilots barely knew how to fly planes. Right, right. 
And they didn't know how to land because they didn't bother. But w- how come the grass in front of the Pentagon wasn't disrupted then? Well, sure it was. Well, it it, it was. hit, I'm sure it was. I didn't see pictures of that. You can sure. see pictures of that all over the internet. Who is this guy? How did you see him? <laughs> I don't know. If you go to um, if you go to popularmechanics.com, uh, they have a pretty thorough debunking of all of those myths, and they include a picture of the Pentagon that shows damage to the the front of it, and I mean it's pretty obvious. What are you alleging, Jay? I'm not saying anything. I just I'm telling you from the pictures that I've seen. I don't know. I'm not. I am not the master of all things 9/11, but. <laughs> Well, I mean, if you if you want to see a picture of it, you just need to look <laughs> for the picture of it. Don't I mean, don't get snappy there. with me. I'm, look, I'm, I'm no, I'm going to get snappy people. with you when you're being so completely unskeptical about something. <laughs> yeah. to, to say that to say that it's not there because I didn't see a picture of it. I am being totally <laughs> skeptical. I know what kind of what kind of response is that? <laughs> I don't see a the picture logic of it, underlying so that. Conclusion. No, what I mean is, look, I didn't. I never claim that I am a expert at these things. I certainly believe. You know, that I've never seen a picture of your mother. <laughs> So I guess she doesn't exist. <laughs> Don't you dare bring my mother into this. Look, all I'm saying is is that I, I of all the pictures I've seen, all the footage I've seen taken, I've never seen like what oh, I would expect man. to have happened to the ground if if an airliner hit it. Well, that's a that's a good point in that what is your ex- expectations based right. on? Exactly. And the the point is, I think that. The conspiracy theorists make this huge mistake as they actually have the arrogance to think that they have any idea what would happen in such an unprecedented and unusual event as a uh, a passenger jet loaded with fuel crashing into one of the biggest, most heavily reinforced buildings in the world. This is literally an unprecedented crash, a very high-energy, chaotic event. And the same thing with nobody the knows towers, what's Steve. supposed to happen. It's the same thing with Twin Towers. I, I've, I've listened to many uh, mechanical engineers who said that they were watching the Twin Towers and they were saying that they're not going to go down. They're just built too strong. It just, they were in shock when they went down. Yeah. It's just a completely chaotic event and, and unpredictable. Yeah, and, and there was no prior history really to base it on. It was really it was a, right, it was a exactly. unique event. That's it. And what the conspiracy theorists do, and I do think I, the, of um, the... Uh, the scientific sites that are reviewing the specific claims of the conspiracy theorists, I think Rebecca is right. The Popular Mechanics article, which we'll have on our notes page, was the best one that I found. They really went point by point and took the most common claims of the conspiracy theorists. Uh, but what they basically do is make you know unwarranted assumptions about what should have happened during these crashes and say, well, why is this the case? Why is that the case? Why isn't there this? Why isn't there that? And they're basically just mystery-mongering and trying to somehow roll that into a conspiracy. For example, many of the sites notice that the windows next to the location where the plane hit the Pentagon were not shattered. And they just throw that out there. Why weren't those windows shattered? As if that's supposed to be like this big mystery that should make us question the the basic events of that day. Well, they didn't shatter because they were blast windows. Yeah, I mean we're talking about the Pentagon. <laughs> yeah, I mean they were they were designed not to not to explode. They were blast windows. Yeah, but I haven't seen any pictures of these blast windows. I don't know if they exist. <laughs> nah. You are so lucky we're not in the same room because I would punch you in the face. I swear to God. <laughs> um, did you guys did you guys know that the Pentagon uh, uh, or the the the, previ- the prior years to to nine uh, eleven was uh, they went through like a, a multi-million dollar 
uh, job of reinforcing a, yeah. a lot of a lot of the building and the structure, and a lot of more people would have died, and a lot of the building would have collapsed, or more than than did collapse uh, if it wasn't for that. It's like they just finished too. Right before the plane. Yeah, and of course, that's one of the coincidences that the, the conspiracy theorists point to and say that you know the, right. the jet hit the one side of the Pentagon that had just been renovated and reinforced. Like, what are the odds? Uh, <laughs> one in five? Yeah, one in <laughs> <Yeah>. five. <laughs> Pen- Pentagon! <laughs> well, I, I, actually, they're, they're 100%. The odds were 100%. Cause it did. Because <laughs> it happened, right? right. It must have been 100%. That's right. <laughs> Yeah, they, the conspiracy theorists also say that um, they, they just make some stuff up. They don't just oh, yeah. leap oh, to yeah. conclusions. They just say things like a Boeing 757 was never found in the Pentagon wreckage. Well, yes, there was. Yeah, there we was. have plenty of people who say that there was. And if you're going to say that all of these people are somehow conspiring together, I mean, you've got a conspiracy theory that just... I mean, the scale of it is just incomprehensible. That's right. And that's why these grand conspiracy theories, as I say, collapse under their own weight. Because every time you come up with a problem with a conspiracy, it means that more people had to be involved in the cover-up. And the conspiracy just grows and grows and grows and grows. Yeah, all these people who were involved with the cleanup at the Pentagon, people who were picking body parts with, you know, American Airlines uniforms on them, off the ground. Yeah, but they I mean, killed all those people. Yeah, right. But they accounted for all of the all of the people, except for, I think for one passenger on that plane. Uh, they really they were, did. They, they were, found physical material for everybody. Yeah, they found all the body parts of all the people on that plane, except for one person. I think they couldn't find. Is there a, a basic alternate hypothesis? What do they think? It was missiles. Yeah, the missile is the most missiles? common one I hear. I mean, I heard or a bomb. One person advocate a truck with with uh, explosives in it, but too many people heard and saw something in the air crashing into the building. You know, right. most of the people say it was a jetliner. Some people d- did not say that. I've also heard military cargo jet as opposed to passenger plane. Yeah, either some kind of either another kind of aircraft or a missile is the the most common thing that I've heard. I tell you though, guys, if if I truly believed that my country was capable of doing that, I'd be moving to Sweden. Yeah, come really. on, would you even live here if your country is capable of doing something like that? Come on. Well, Bob, honestly, and I, please don't take me as being the big conspiracy theorist, though, but governments do really screwed up things to get their agendas done. I'm not saying that this was an example of that, but, Bob, yeah, the governments kill people. Governments, you know, bribe other countries and blackmail people and do all, you know, double those well, yeah, and I mean, that's that's the same kind of thinking that leads to, say, homeopathy getting accepted because doctors sometimes do messed up stuff because big pharmaceutical companies uh, are after the almighty dollar and do screwed up stuff. So but Rebecca, they assume, it's therefore, true. they're I mean, capable you, you, you of... The, no, I, that. I'm saying it, it is true, and that's what leads oh, okay. to people mind. to believe these grand, just completely stupid conspiracies that yeah, make I mean, no it sense. It becomes a, a, a logical fallacy in that, you know, yeah, sure, the government's sometimes are are deceitful uh, sometimes they do bad things uh there are cover ups but you have to think 
uh, it depends. If you're living, if you were living in 1960s Soviet Union behind the Iron Curtain, there's probably almost nothing that the Soviet Union was not capable of pulling off and hiding from the public at large. They didn't have a free press. They had a very well-run and efficient, you know, spook force in their country. And but we live in an open society with a free press, and it's you know traditionally very difficult for politicians to to hide massive conspiracies from the American public. It's basically the just not uh, possible. Former president couldn't even keep his BJ's in the yeah. Oval I, Office. I know. Yeah, there's no way. There's no way that our current administration could have artfully pulled this off. Right. No. And and the risk is just far. Just considering risk alone, it's far too great to, to even risk getting caught. Even if you could somehow justify it in some twisted logic, just the risk alone is is. This is a de- right. is a deal killer. Hello. Right. Okay, we get found out, then that means okay, no Republicans get elected for a half a century or more. Just because of what right. I did. It's true. I mean, come on, who would risk that? It's absurd. It's absolutely it's absurd. The, it's beyond it was, absurd. It's beyond absurd. And you're right, Bob. They have to invest in the conspirators, absolute evil genius, that they could pull something like this off. You know, the timing of if you if you look at you know the, like I saw. Um, Spare change today. This is one of the conspiracy uh, uh, videos. And they say, you know, they show the slow motion video of one of the planes crashing into one of the Twin Towers. And they say, look at this frame. There's a flash of light on, you know, the, uh, the Twin Tower, but it's a little bit in front of the nose of the plane. Therefore, it wasn't the plane hitting the tower. It was a missile that they shot right at the exact moment that the plane was just about to crash into the okay. twin tower and they and they managed to to switch the, you know the plane and and deceive all the passengers and they had the missile on the plane somehow so it was a military operation i mean i mean they they invest absolutely um supernatural genius and capability and power in the conspirators in order to be able to pull off the the kind of thing that they believe that they pulled off it's really incredible you know it's kind of like the you know the oj trial and the, they were trying to say that it was a conspiracy. The, the you know the uh, the L.A. police force had a grand conspiracy to to frame him, and but at, simultaneously the L.A. police force was being ridiculed for how ridiculous and stupid they were and right. all the missteps that they took. You can't have it both ways. That's right. And the, apparently and you, you can with that jury, but you know. <laughs> and conspiracy theorists do want to have it both ways. They, they're evil geniuses, but they're absurdly stupid in certain ways, and of course the, all the ways that the conspirators figure them out, right? Because they're, they're, they're even smarter than the genius conspirators because they can see through the veil of darkness that they've spread. Steve, this would be a really good topic to, uh, to discuss in detail on our bulletin board. Yeah, that's true. Well, I'm sure we'll start to get some posts about it. I mean, it really is It's an interesting topic. It's, I don't think it's going to go away anytime soon. Uh, another thing about the conspiracy theories is no matter what evidence comes to light, you know, any evidence that's too inconvenient was just planted by the evil geniuses uh, or was manufactured, and any evidence that's missing is, was covered up and, and hushed up by the government. So um, you, you basically get, end up with a closed belief system that can't be disproved. Well, whoever Bush put on the uh, evil genius tip to come up with 9-11, I'd love for him to have that guy spend some time on our economy now. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, where are these evil geniuses when you need them? Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, let's move on. Rebecca, you had mentioned the, the homeopathy. That sort of leads into our next news item. Several doctors in the United Kingdom, our friends across the pond, 
I think it was 13 physicians, wrote an open letter to people in, involved with the National Health Service, basically protesting the use of alternative and complementary medicine in the National Health Service. And they were specifically protesting two initiatives. Uh, one was uh, a policy, an, an NHS policy in terms of uh, promoting the use of homeopathy. Uh, and another one was a commission which was um, supported by the Prince, who was, a, who was a very fond of alternative medicine. I think this was the Smallwood Report, which basically concluded that broadening access to alternative health modalities would reap benefits, you know, in, in the UK. Well, you know, now we know for certain that Prince Charles is an idiot or a drunk, right? right? As if we didn't know it before. Yeah. A little yeah, bit of the bubbly, eh, Governor? You know, like, <laughs> come, on. come on, Charlie. Get your head out of your ass. Guys, let, let me read one quote that from, the, uh, from the link that Steve sent to me earlier that Prince Charles said, right? Many of today's complementary therapies are rooted in ancient traditions that intuitively understood the need to maintain balance and harmony with our minds, bodies, and the natural world. Why do people believe that ancient people were so tuned in to the earth and to harmony and to balance and our mind? Like, where, where did all this wisdom go in the past few hundred or thousand years? It was all suppressed by our evil modern Western civilization. It's another selling point for their concoction. I think that it's a it's it's a grand scale version of man. Things were so much better when I was a kid back in the eighties, yeah. you know. And you keep going back, and it's like, well, you know, thousands of years ago, things were awesome. I mean, sure, we were dying when we were like twenty eight, but yeah. life was short, brutish, and nasty. You it know, was but... short, but so sweet. Is there a, a I'm sure the data exists. Do you know of the the actual like age of death at the average age of death, say 100, 200, 300 years ago? Yeah, I mean it basically simmered along at around you know 35 to 40. Um, yeah, but is that mean, median, or mode? I mean, you have to spe- should you specify that's that? life expectancy, which is which is an average. That's a mean. That's a mean. Okay, so they'll average lifespan. Lifespan hasn't really changed that much. People. You know, probably Neanderthals occasionally would live to be 70 or 80 yeah. or older. But on average, they were living to about 40. And that goes back even to, you know, prehistory. Um, if, we, if you, in fact, look at fossil, hum, you know, prehumans or hu- early humans, Homo sapiens, they, you know, the average age was about 40 when they died. Uh, and the same was true about 150 years ago. And then at when, basically, when Western medicine became scientific, then the um, uh, life expectancy began a steady climb, and right now is somewhere between 75 and 80, depending on depending on the country. So it's basically double over the last 150 years. I wonder if those two things had anything to do with each other. Yeah, you can always say that there's, there's a correlation without causation, but the correlation holds up pretty much everywhere. Whenever you introduce Western medicine into a third world country, their life expectancy starts rising. So, you know, you, you take someone like Prince Charles, probably, yeah. you know, the opportunity for him to go to, to school... Right, he probably went to some of the best schools. I'm just assuming, right? Someone in his position, very worldly type of a person. The guy's been probably traveled all over the world, and he is—he's completely stuck in the mire of pseudoscience. That—that's right. very depressing to me. Yeah, but why wouldn't he be? I mean, in fact, a college-level education 
if anything, increases the chance that you'll be you know, you know, favorably predisposed to alternative medicine. You really need to get to the point where you have some kind of advanced training in science, or you need a generally skeptical outlook before you realize that this is all bunk. Or you need to listen to this podcast. Yeah, well, that that, that would go under the general. <laughs> the skeptics will outlook. guide you through this universe yeah, appropriately. And I mean, but, look at who you're talking about. I mean, it's Prince Charles. The only reason why anybody listens to what he says is because he had the good fortune to fall out of the right womb. I mean, <laughs> he has the proper inbreeding. Rebecca, my point. <laughs> my point is, it's just sad. Someone in his position, it's like. You just would expect him to be more educated, and have, you know the guy's leading leading a life of what? What's what does he do with his time? Quiet desperation <laughs> of privilege, but not necessarily <laughs> intellect. But, but you also have to understand that just historically, homeopathy has been very popular with the royal family, and is much more popular and influential in. Europe in general and Great Britain in particular than it is in the United States. You know, we have our pseudosciences like chiropractic that are much, much more popular over here, but homeopathy really is a European pseudoscience. We have a very, very small amount of it over here compared to what they have. God, over I there. hate homeopathy. Yeah, I mean, homeopathy <laughs> is just about the worst alternative medicine pseudoscience around. It's the most demonstrably absurd of the bunch. And we've talked about it before on this podcast, but I don't know that we really have gotten into the nitty-gritty of how absolutely absurd it is. So let's talk about a few things about homeopathy. Homeopathy was invented, you know, a couple hundred years ago by this guy named Hahnemann, so basically before scientific medicine. In fact, uh, at that time, doing doing nothing was better than going to a hospital and getting whatever the standard of care was at that time. Basically, if you went into a hospital, you were going to get poisoned and diseased. Um, so any at that time, any alternative was probably a good thing. But, but when uh, Hahnemann came up with homeopathy, he basically made it up out of whole cloth based upon just a couple of anecdotal observations, and then he spun that into an entire you know, belief system. It wasn't a science. It was never tested in any empirical way. It's really a philosophy-based um, alternative modality. And basically, he had his three quote-unquote laws. They're not really scientific laws. They're just sort of really just magical laws. The first is the law of similar, that like cures like. Uh, and again, there's nothing scientific about that. This is pure witchcraft and magical thinking. It's like the four humors. It's nonsense. It's worse than the four humors. I mean, uh, the four humors at least were stuff that was really in the body, like blood, you know. But yeah, okay. the, uh, I, So he basically says that if, like, an onion makes your eyes water, then some homeopathic extract of onion can cure diseases which make your eyes water. That's magical thinking. There's no basis to reality that would make that happen, that would that would make something which causes your symptoms to, to also relieve them in, in quote unquote tiny doses. Well Steve, don't they call that they call that process proving, don't they, where they actually try to determine um, you know, if you if I give you this little tiny dilute solution or whatever and see what it does to you, then then that's what you know, that's what can be used to to cure it. I mean the, yeah, well, they actually they, they, they give you an actual dose of something and see what symptoms you get. Yeah, right. The, yeah. the beauty of it is they usually tell you exactly what sort of symptoms you're supposed to get first, so that way you know what to look for. Right, right. I mean, can't you just see them standing there with their little with their little notepad and saying, "Okay, he's scratching his nose. Okay, itching. Itching is one thing. And <laughs> yeah, oh, he's really got do. gas. He's got gas." Everything. Steve, Every, isn't home- everything that happens to them? Steve, they isn't homeopathy one of those? Um, things that could very easily be tested. Why don't they, you know... It has been tested, and it doesn't work. 
It's been tested many, many times. Did you know that, uh, I don't know if this is still true, but I think I remember reading that uh, homeopathy is the only category of um, of products that are legally marketable as drugs that are... It got right. grandfathered in by the, into the FDA in the 1940s. Um, it was political. Homeopathy was much more popular in our country back then. So, they, so, Steve, you said there were three. The first one was the law of similars. Yeah, so the, the second law is the law of infinitesimals. Oh, this is the best. This is this the good one. one, right? I love how <laughs> Randy summarized this in a lecture once. He said, so the first law says if you want to cure a symptom, you take something which causes those symptoms. And the second law is you don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. The second law is that you dilute it to such a degree that there's nothing left. So what you're actually taking is nothing. Now, of course, this is partly because Hahnemann lived before Avogadro, right? I mean, he lived before we knew that you couldn't just dilute something infinitely. You know, that, that stuff is made of molecules, and those molecules, once you get down to one molecule, you can't dilute beyond that. Wouldn't his common sense have told him? I don't think Avogadro really needed to say, hey, you know, if you dilute that enough, eventually there's really nothing... Nothing left. Yeah, it, what now? <laughs> it, come on. <laughs> it is anti to, to think that the more you dilute something, the stronger it gets. I mean, yeah. come on. Guys, my, my, my research showed that Hahnemann did realize that there was no chance of even one molecule remaining after all, all these dilutions. And it, uh, it, it further said that uh, he believed that vigorous shaking or pulverizing with each step of dilution leaves behind a spirit-like essence no longer perceptible to the senses, which cures by reviving the body's vital force. So he did. He did try to take that into account. Apparently. I don't know. I don't know about that. I have to I have to check that out. That's not. I my understanding was that. I, mean, I think that's more of a modern reconstructing of what he was saying, to to fit better now that we know that there is a dilutional limit. I my reading suggested that at the time Hahnemann wrote that law, that it was not known that there was a limit to how much you could dilute something. Um, we we could check well, that out to confform that. He thought it made it stronger. In essence, he did. You know, what's funny, this guy really wasn't a quack in the sense that he wasn't trying to deliberately hurt people and take advantage of them. I guess he was a quack, but, you know, he really... By modern standards, but at the time, this was pre-scientific medicine. Yeah, he was a quack with his heart in the right place. Yeah, exactly. I know it's funny, but it's true. You can't blame him for not being a scientist before there were scientists, you know. Oh, yes, I can. But you can blame (laughs) people today (laughs) for believing in something that was nonsense 200 years ago when we have the benefit of 200 years of science to know that it's BS. Steve, do you remember, remember Randy? I've read a lot about homeopathy since I saw Randy talk about it. Yeah, and I also like the way he 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 really did go through the process of describing like how they make a homeopathic remedy. Well, we're getting to the third law in a second, but, we, but we, when we talk about infinitesimals, let me just—I did some calculations. The dilutions are really, really, really big. One of the common dilutions you'll see is uh, 30C. A C is a one to a hundred dilution. So if you have like a 10C, means you dilute something one to a hundred. 10 times. 30C is 1 to 130 times. So I did some calculations, and this has been done before, but I just wanted to do it for myself to see what I got. And if you start with, you know, 1 cc of material, and you do a, a uh, or 1 cubic centimeter of material, and you dilute it, you know, 1 to 130 times, the, uh, the volume of water, the equivalent volume of water that you are ultimately diluting that substance into is a sphere with a diameter of 800 light years. Okay, that's, so that's 800 times 6 trillion. Why is that's that miles we're talking do, about? Do, do homeopathic remedies typically claim to be diluted to that degree? 
Oh yeah, that's seen, what they're saying. Thirty C. That's 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 how one of the highest it. ones. Thirty C. Yeah, but even if you go, yeah. I mean, even significantly less than that, you're still dealing with you know <laughs> with incredibly large volumes of water. I could beat that. I go hear. I, I have one right here. Two hundred C for relief of colds and flu-like symptoms, and it is pronounced a silicosinum, I believe. Yeah, right. So 200C. Wow. 200C. How many light years is that? you got to go into <laughs> mega, mega parsecs. It's probably bigger than the known universe at 200C. Now, how do they, yeah, Steve, right. when they prepare these remedies, how are they claiming that they're creating something that dilute? Well, because you just serially dilute it and you just do the math. That's how... That's how yeah, what they do is they just they just take out a little bit of a little drop and like they you put take it out in a one bucket. cc and put it in ten more cc's and you take out a cc of that and put it in ten more ten more cc's or a hundred more cc's. But don't yeah. forget, you got to shake. You got to <laughs> right, shake and then it. each time. So that's the third law, which is succussion, I guess they call it, where you have to shake it ten times in each axis, up, down, side, side, front, back, and again. Ten times. That's like the magic number. It's ritual. <laughs> it's magic. It's witchcraft. It's magic, but you end up with some very fit arms by the end. Right. Of yes. And you ask right. homeopaths today, well, that. you know, there's, there's no, you can't deny the fact, it's just math, that there's no substance of the original substance remaining in these preparations. And they say, well, it, it retains the essence of what was dissolved into or it. And that's a what memory. The, like, yeah, like the a memory. memory of, but that's just, they might as well just say it's magic because right. there is no physical, chemical, whatever, basis for water retaining the chemical memory or signature of something that used to be dissolved in it. It's nonsense. That also means that also means that anytime you drink water, that that water, because it interacted with other, with other molecules in its past, it's, it's going to have some weird, unpredictable effect on you. Who'd, who'd, who knows? Yeah. You know, it's like, come on, just think about yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, really, the entire, the entire Atlantic Ocean has the memory right. of my pee. true. I thought I tasted something funny last time I went. Oh. Sorry about that, guys. I had to go. <laughs> Are you sure the law of infinitesimals refers to dilution and not the IQ of the adherence to this theory? Right. I mean, it's, it's incredible. The lower your IQ, the more likely you are to use and believe in homeopathy. <laughs> well, let's get to some emails. We had our usual large crop of emails over the last week or so. Uh, the first one comes from Pekka Strandroth in Sweden. I think this is our first email from Sweden. And she writes, Hi, here's something I think you should take a look at. KissCancerGoodbye.com. Ken Nichols claims that he cured himself from stage 4 testicular cancer, bladder cancer, liver cancer, and cancer of the lymph nodes by holistic healing, which included lifestyle changes, diet, exercise, rest, prayer, and a holistic medical regimen, including Chinese medicine. He claims that it is much better than chemotherapy or radiation. I'm very skeptical, but I'd like to hear your thoughts on the matter. Well, well, yeah, I, I read yeah. I read Ken Nichols' site. It's pretty sparse, but it's totally typical. I mean, you could write this stuff in your sleep. It's the absolutely prototypical. I had this awful cancer. You know, the the established medicine just wanted to poison me and and cut me and burn me. So I went looking for alternatives, and I found this wonderful thing. You know, it's just it's it's so the story is so perfect. It has to be fake. It's totally apocryphal. Plus, I, I, I honestly, I mean, obviously, there are people out there who've had spontaneous remissions from cancer who will, you know, promote whatever it was they were doing when they had their spontaneous remission, or they got the chemo and the surgery, but also pursued some alternative modality, and they think and they credit that with what's cured them, or, you know, they're they're in the the stage after their initial treatment 
but before they get their recurrence. So, um, you know, a lot of people, they get treated for their cancer, they, the tumor shrinks, and it goes away for a while, and then they have a couple of years where they don't know if, they, if they're cured or not, and then the, the cancer either comes back or it doesn't. Of course, when the cancer comes back and they die, you never hear from them again. Uh, but if it doesn't, then they go out. They go around proselytizing for whatever it was that they were doing. Steve, if somebody had the, those four cancers, yeah, is there any chance that a, a spontaneous remission would happen? Does it happen? It's always it's always possible. Spontaneous remissions do happen. Now, I don't believe I don't believe this guy's story. Frankly, I couldn't find any more information about him on the on the internet. But it just looks like too perfect a story. Plus, the guy is on a Christian ministry and he's trying to raise money for his ministry. So oh, I, I think I think I think this is just a way of promoting his ministry and making money. I, There's a special I don't place buy in it hell for a second. For like and the only thing I did find was actually Pekka sent me a follow-up email when I asked her for some more information, and she said that um, there actually is um, some skepticism about whether or not this guy ever had cancer to begin with, which is the other kind of patient who never had cancer to begin with. It was never really documented that he had it or that he lost it. It was really, there's no medical information to document what this guy is saying. Surprise, surprise. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) sometimes when the quacks get get their hooks in you from the very beginning, they could diagnose you with cancer with a fraudulent test, then give you their fraudulent therapy, and, and then claim to have cured you from cancer, and then, you know, then, you, of course, you don't die from cancer. You live forever long your, your natural lifespan. And you thinking that you were cured from cancer that you never had. So that's, that's always a good way to Steve, generate he says on his well. website, my goal is to not make money with this website. Uh, frankly, right. I, hate, I hate the whole concept of money and possessions. My goal is to be able to raise enough money to support our ministry. Yeah, just <laughs> two... I hate Too these perfect. guys. Seriously, uh-huh. I they fill yeah. me with a bitter rage that is just unmatched by yeah. a million suns. Like it's, <laughs> they are despicable. Totally this is despicable. a guy I would really like Rebecca to see. I'd love to see Rebecca. In a <laughs> I think I could take him. <laughs> I know I could take him. Well, the guy's riddled with cancer. Yeah. <laughs> we'll have to change his website to kiss your ass <laughs> Maybe exactly. I'll start a, com- a, a competitive website. Site and try to call him out. See if maybe. Uh, uh, so he he goes through all the the standard conspiracy theories again. Well, like conspiracy like theories you said, about, Steve, you can write this stuff in you your could, sleep. You could I mean, about the pharmaceutical industry doesn't want to cure you; uh, they just want to treat you and keep you sick. Hospitals and doctors don't want to cure you. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> I set up night nights thinking of ways to keep my patients sick so I can. Yeah, and not to mention, it. like when your family gets cancer, you know, you're just going to let them oh, die ridiculous. because you it's don't totally want to give up the big conspiracy. <laughs> It's absurd. Think about it. Any pharmaceutical company that came up with the cure for cancer would have their advertising slogan for the next thousand years. We're the company that cured cancer. Yeah, we cured cancer. That's worth billions and billions. No, any pharmaceutical company would jump at the chance to cure cancer. It's like absurd. People who work in the mailroom of that company are going out to the bars and saying, hey, can I get your number? I work at that company that cured cancer. You know? Right. Yeah, I mean... Yeah. <laughs> You know, they would they would gladly give up all the business, all the contacts, all the co- everything that they do. They would gladly drop it all, start from scratch, curing cancer, and that's all they do. And they would gladly do it. You know, oh, it's silly. So I wrote an article about this. It's on our website, but it's I go over all the claims. It's so absurd. Things that most people don't realize is that medicine is not this monolithic 
construct or industry. It's not like we all get together in the same boardroom and cook up conspiracies or that anyone could control what I think or do as a physician. Not the AMA, not the FDA, not even the university that I work for. And that the standard of care is is pretty much established by salaried academic, usually university affiliated physicians who have are not in private practice, do not make money based upon treating patients, uh, and are not affiliated with with industry or with with regulatory agencies that they're academic you know they make their living doing research and publishing papers and and being leaders and curing stuff and their their career would be made by anything even approaching a cure for cancer they're, they're making you say all that aren't they <laughs> yeah, well, there's a pharmaceutical <laughs> rep with a gun to his head right now <laughs> yeah. I'm good That's though, very good. <laughs> I think uh, one of the things that, that a lot of these people believe is that it really is the pharmaceutical companies that, you know, the doctors. Yeah. It doesn't, it, it's not that that difficult to stretch of the imagination to just assume that all these, all these doctors are not on the take, but you really don't meet the pharmaceutical companies. And those, you know, I always hear people talk about, oh, you know, these gigantic multi-billion dollar ph- pharmaceutical Big companies. Pharma. It all breaks down when, you know, I, I tell people, well, they have to go to the FDA. They have to go through a very expensive, rigorous approval process. And then, the, you know, the FDA over a years of testing and everything, you know, it's a very complicated process to get to get drugs passed. People really believe that the FDA is behind all of this. <laughs> Some people do, you know, the ones that believe we shot missiles at the Pentagon. Right. <laughs> it's the same thing. I mean, because the... Big pharmaceutical companies do have some underhanded tactics in some of the things yeah. they do when it comes to things like patents or when it comes to their lobby. They've got a, a gigantic political pool. And oh, absolutely, you know, I'm willing to to believe that you know pharmaceutical companies would make corporate decisions that are there in their narrow financial self-interest. Not they're right. not just working for the good of the world. I don't you know. Not being naive, but it just none of the conspiracy theories about like hiding cancer cures make any yeah, sense. Yeah, even First within all, that framework, it still doesn't. Yeah, even with that, even if you assume the worst about the pharmaceutical companies, how would they have the cure if if they didn't intend to use it? I mean, they would right. never have spent the hundred million dollars to figure out that something worked they just to hide it or slip it under the table. Trillions, if they had a cure. But even if you didn't, but it's true. <laughs> but even if you don't buy that. The, the, all you could say is that they would never have researched it in the first place. Okay, fine. If you're telling me that they're they're not pursuing certain things so they don't think they can make money off of it, okay. But that doesn't mean they're hiding a cure that they have it. The other thing, and this is like with the Viox thing, yeah, sure, they, maybe they were slow in, in getting the information about a Viox, but it did come out. And the reason is, is that you can't hide things forever from the research community because guess what? We do research with this stuff. The truth ultimately yeah. comes out. Plus, Steve, don't you know the pharmaceutical I mean? companies compete against each other? So let's say, for example, Absolutely. that a pharmaceutical company doesn't want to create a cure for diabetes because they make diabetic drugs. What about the, another a company that do doesn't it. make diabetic drugs will, yeah. will try to come up with a cure for diabetes, right? Exactly. And again, you, think you, you, ha- you would have to think they're all in bed together in one big giant conspiracy in order to, make this, in order to have this belief. It's just, you know, it's again, they think it's a big, faceless, inhuman, monolithic entity. That's how they think of it, even if they don't realize it. No, it's made up of people with families, you know, and and with people that are close to them that are going to die of cancer. Uh, And and you're right. If the the big pharmaceutical companies were hiding 
a cure for cancer, that would mean that there's a way to cure cancer and that it's known to our current medicine, our current science. It's possible to come up with it. Some startup is going to come up with it. Some people are going to invest a, you know, $20, $30 million, get, get the cure, yeah. and make trillions and then screw the pharma, other pharmaceutical right. companies. They do that but now. Steve, it happens. Steve, and, and again, like in 9-11, there's the risk. We have the cancer cure. Let's hide it. And some... Some janitor spills the beans, sells it to the National Enquirer, then you become the company that cured cancer and hid it, <laughs> thereby, thereby killing right. thousands of people. Yeah, okay, so yeah, you're done. You're, 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 exactly. Close up shop. It's right. worth the risk. It's worth right. the risk. Come on. Right, right. It, it's just, okay, let's move on. <laughs> well, thanks, Pekka. It was a good, good topic you brought up. Please. Excellent. It was excellent. Next one, a little bit lighter. Um, Skeptics Guide Forums and Dream Interpretation. So this is from Bort, who's actually been on our message board. So hi, hey, Bort. Bort. He writes, Hello, I am a graduate student in Houston, Texas, studying cell biology. I have really appreciated listening to your show. I especially enjoy the science or fiction segment. The audio quality seems to be improving every podcast. He asks, Have you thought about a forums? We have, and we did, so thanks. And again, as I said, Bort is already on there. Um, I do have one question, he writes. There is a syndicated talk show put on by the Dream Doctor at dreamdoctor.com. I have listened to the show a couple of times, and it sounds like it is simple cold reading with a twist. He asks people to describe their dreams, and then he analyzes the dreams. After asking personal questions, he then provides an answer to what the dream is telling the person. Do you believe that there is any legitimacy to the connection of dreams and psychological well-being? Well... I actually sent uh, the Dream Doctor. If you go onto the website, you can like email them a dream, and then, then they'll email you back with their interpretation. Although they say there's no guarantee that we'll answer your dream, and you may have to, you know, register for a um, make an appointment yeah, to you pay know, for a personal reading. Right? Yes, <laughs> they never got back to me. We'll see if they do. But uh, the you know, the short answer is not really. I mean, you you really can't interpret dreams because they're so quirky and personal. They have to do with your recent experience and you know, just the chaotic stuff that's going inside your head that nobody could, could know. It's a lot of random associations that are being made in the dream state. Sure, I mean, there may be some kind of basic symbolism in dreams, like you might have a frustration dream or an anger dream or a dream that is in you know, some basic way acting out some kind of fear that you're wrestling with in your in your life recently. Um, sometimes counselors may talk to you about your dreams as just a way of maybe giving them a hint about what's on your mind recently or some kind of issues that you may have. But there's no magic to dreams. It's not the magic window into your psychology or into what's going on. There's nothing really big to learn about it. Usually the symbolism is pretty pretty basic and, don't, and, and don't forget. I mean, for, say for you, a dog might symbolize... I don't know, your girlfriend or something. Dude, that's that sick. That doesn't mean... That doesn't... <laughs> isn't it up? Where did you pull that out? I just... I just... I just yeah, pulled so that... I'm so glad I'm not dating you. What does you? that mean, <laughs> Bob? <Eva? laughs> don't, don't forget, a symbol... A symbol for you... Say you have a dream that, that your dog is your best friend for whatever bizarre reason. That's, you, that's your symbol. That doesn't mean that your, your, your brother's dog symbol is the same thing. And it doesn't mean that a dog in every dream that you have is the same thing. And so the symbols are different from person to person and from, you know, on, between the same person as yeah, time passes. So it's, symbols are meaningless. Get away from symbols. Don't even, don't even worry about symbols because it's, it's, it's a so waste of time. So that dream went where no, I was the, beating but, Jay Senseless. I don't actually want to beat Jay Senseless. Is that what you're saying? 
Because I'm pretty sure I do. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. But, you know, in in your dream, Jay may have been a symbol for Perry. (laughs) That's a good point. (laughs) Rebecca, I will tell you what, though. You could smack me in the face with a a slice of bacon, okay? (laughs) But talking about symbols, Bob, on thedreamdoctor.com, he has a dream symbols Dictionary. There you go. There you with go. a lot of a lot of symbols and what they mean. Like for example, here's the bridge. The bridge is a symbol of transition. Bridges take us from one location to another, usually across emotional waters. What a jackass! What? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you, I, I was reading some of these, and you could literally. I mean, you could write these in your sleep too. You could make these up off the top of your head. Sure. They are just the most obvious, basic interpretation of whatever it is that he's talking about. It's Who's going to totally correct you? Silly. I mean, it's not you know. It's Just totally pick subjective. At random. Yeah. Tornadoes. Tornadoes are unpredictable and violent storms which often separate families and destroy property. So this means instability and outbursts. Oh, that's nice. You know, I love it when people just make stuff up. Yeah. <laughs> Basically. All right. So dream interpretation. I'm going to send down. in a dream to them, and it's going to be really. Yeah, I did. I'll, I'll let you know. I'll, we'll follow up if we. <laughs> that if would we be fun. Imagine if we just spam them with totally ridiculous. I'm dreams. gonna. <laughs> I'm gonna give them the most messed up dream they'll ever read, and it's going to be true. <laughs> oh, You're an enigma. Right. <laughs> okay, here we go. The next email comes from Chad Donahue in Seattle, USA. Chad has actually sent us a few questions in the last couple of weeks, but. Several of them have to do with this basic theme, so I'm just going to read this one as a representative question. He says, Hi, folks. Love your podcast. I want to comment on what appears to be a slight confusion from your April 11th podcast. Hoping you can clear this up. When you spoke of the astounding odds against two species having similar DNA by chance, you seem to be saying this as an argument favoring evolution over God. First of all, why make any comment on God at all, since to do so is to immediately leave the realm of science? You then mentioned how God wouldn't... It would have had to have deliberately designed species to appear related if such slight DNA variations were in place by design. Fair enough, but in what way do odds to um, in what way do odds to cited actually favor an anti-God view? I'm not sure what he's saying there. I found this a little confusing. Thanks. Well, I found it a little confusing too. <laughs> um, but to to clarify what we were talking about, so this is the uh, we were talking about the molecular evidence evidence for evolution, the fact that if you look at the pattern of relatedness at a molecular level between um, you know, the DNA from the humans, chimps, other primates, other mammals, other tetrapods, etc., that the, the, the similarities and differences at, the, at multiple molecular levels exactly follow an evolutionary pattern, what you would predict from a series of, uh, re, of relatedness, and that there is no non-evolutionary explanation for that evidence, period. There's just no non-evolutionary explanation for it, and that if... if now, this, that doesn't mean that God doesn't exist. It, it wasn't an argument about the existence of God or having anything to do with it. But creationists believe that God made made all life on Earth. So if you believe that, if you believe that God made everything, then you would have to believe that God created life on Earth deliberately to look exactly as if it had evolved. That was really the only point that we were making. And that's, from a logical point of view, that's an absurd claim. From a scientific point of view, what that basically means is that creationism is not science. Because if you could say that God created life to appear exactly as if it had evolved, you know, then you're basically making an unfalsifiable statement, which is outside the realm of science. So, 
I hope that that clarifies our position. And we've also clarified in the past that we don't deal with questions that are formulated in such a way that they are purely within the realm of faith, which means that they don't deal with um, truth claims about physical reality, and they aren't stated in terms of logic and evidence, or logic or evidence. So if you want to hold some belief as a personal thing based upon faith without claiming logic or evidence, and it's not a testable claim, who cares? That's your, that's your personal choice. That's our position. We had one correction um, from last week's Randy podcast. This one comes from Roger Wamheim. I hope I pronounced that correctly. Uh, I was listening to the May 24, 2006 podcast of The Skeptic's Guide. Again, a great program. I did catch one mistaken comment by Randy and the group. The topic dis- discussed was whether a hydrogen torch could match the temperature of the surface of the sun, and it was quickly poo-pooed. However, the hosting guest c- comments seemed to indicate a misunderstanding of the temperatures at the core of the sun versus the surface temperature. Um, he then cites a couple of references. One, that the surface temperature of the sun is about 11,000 degrees Fahrenheit, and that hydrogen torches can generate temperatures around 6,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, well, Roger, interestingly, Bob and I actually commented about this after the show. You know, we both kind of caught that statement and, and just didn't have an opportunity to get back to it. Sometimes things get past you in a show like that. But you're right, and that's a common mis- misconception that um, the surface of the sun is like millions of degrees or a super hot. But actually, the surface of the sun is only about 11,000 degrees Fahrenheit or 6,000 degrees Celsius. And that's about the same order of magnitude as torches, like acetylene torches. Again, I, I check, double-checked some references myself, and you come up with things somewhere between six and 7,000 degrees Fahrenheit um, compared to 11,000 degrees Fahrenheit for the surface of the sun. So saying that you have a a torch that's as hot as the surface of the sun is not that impressive. That's one of those claims that sounds a lot more impressive than it is. Like, my my favorite one of those is commercials that say a product uses space-age technology. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, you mean from the 1960s? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Sounds really, sounds much more impressive than it is. That's very G-Wizzy, you know? Yeah, Yeah, right. But uh, now, of course, the core of the sun is, you know, is millions of degrees. And and Bob, you pointed out to me also that the corona around the sun may right. also be millions of degrees. But but the surface itself is actually, you know, yeah, not I believe that, that's what that the, they might right. be giants puts the temperature at in their brilliant song. The sun is a mass of incandescent gas. For those, they might be giants. Fans. Yes, is, Steve. Is there an upper <laughs> exactly. limit to what to temperature? There, there probably is because. At some point, energy—if you put enough energy into matter—you just make more matter. You know, yeah, right? Well, if anyone out there knows, I'd like to know. Put it on the bulletin board. Also, did there, have we ever visibly seen any suns that have a ring around them like Saturn? Well, they, they found suns with uh, with like planetary debris, like a proto-planetary system uh, orbiting the sun. So, but, yeah, that, so yeah, yes, like, uh, the answer would be yes. Although, you know, it's not. It's more of a solar system ring than a planetary ring, but it's similar. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it's not it's not a ring like the ring around Saturn. And I think they're called planetary rings, right, Bob? It's basically a disk of, or a planetary disk. It's a disk of material um, orbiting around the sun. That, and that's that eventually will become system. a planet? It, that's the belief, yes. Okay. Well, we have uh, enough time left for a name that logical fallacy and then a science or fiction. 
Um, this name, that logical fallacy, was inspired by a recent well, another email. This email is from Cecil, and he uh, wrote to me about another quack. This guy is uh, sells himself as Dr. Schultz. Dr. Schultz is actually not a physician. He's a naturopath. The guy that used and to that, work on Hogan's Heroes? <laughs> right. Richard Schultz. He's so... Hogan! <laughs> I love that guy. <laughs> Steve, didn't Cecil write to us before? Uh, he might have. I think, he, I think Cecil's asked us other questions. Yeah, you're right, Jay. So, this guy, he's, he's, he's a, 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 a naturopath and I'm not saying that they're not real doctors just to be proprietary. Naturopaths are are quacks. They are nuts. They believe every completely wacky, pseudoscientific, ridiculous thing that you can imagine. They prescribe homeopathic remedies. Everything that doesn't make any sense, they're into. Um, it's not just using sort of nutrition or natural interventions. They really believe completely absurd anti-scientific things. Well, I don't think you can say that about all naturopaths, though. So. Oh, yes, you can. No, you can I'm say pretty that. sure and that I've read, met one that's not like that. If you read, or listen, you, obviously I can't, I've not interviewed every single naturopath <laughs> that exists. And I'm not claiming that that's the truth. But the, the, the leaders of naturopathy, the, the people who you know, run their colleges and who are, you know, run their societies, they, they, you could base it on their statements, on their textbooks, this is what naturopathy is. Okay. There may be individuals who are trying to be more scientific than the mainstream of naturopathy, but this is what it if is. If you met a naturopath, Rebecca, who was a, a critical thinker, he was a rare exception. I think I dated one, actually, <laughs> very briefly. But you yeah. may be slightly well, biased that in your opinion. <laughs> 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 no, I, I swear, he, he was um, studying immunology and working in a natural food store and... Yeah, but you know, you got to delve a little deeper than that. I'll tell you, we will do we will do a longer segment on it in the future, and I have okay. guests in mind to talk about it, and you will see. It is not tea. All right, let's go on to name that logical fallacy. So here, I just pulled a couple of statements off of Dr. Scholz's website. So here's the first paragraph. He says, Dr. Scholz never takes credit for his healing knowledge. In fact, he often says that his patients or even God taught him everything. Uh, regardless of who developed these programs and formula, one thing we do know is they work. So, what you guys any notice any logical fallacies in that well, first Well, how statement? about argue, argument from authority? You know, if God's exactly. teaching you, whoa, that's a big authority. Yeah, right. So I think the appeal to God is definitely an appeal to the ultimate authority, which is basically saying my claims are correct because they come from some author, some authority figure. Or in, in a broader sense, um, you could say that uh, the, the logical fallacy is that my claims are correct because I possess some virtue, which is the argument from virtue, which I consider to be sort of a subset of the argument from authority. And, he, and that's also what he's playing to. That's sort of the bigger concept he's playing to here. I'm not taking credit for my hearing knowledge. I'm just a good, humble guy. You know, I'm a virtuous, humble guy. So you should believe what I'm saying. Yeah, we don't want money. Fact, I just my, want your money so I can go travel the world and spread right. my kissmyassgoodbye.com, that other guy. Also saying, you know, one thing we know is that they work. That's sort of begging the question. That's not what we do know. That's actually the question, isn't it, whether or not these things actually work. He also writes, we know this because for almost a decade now, thousands of people just like you that have never met him and never talked to him have healed themselves of any and all diseases using his powerful and effective natural healing programs and herbal formula. So that's a tautology, right? I mean, that's just we know they work because they work, you know, is there's not really... Uh, 
uh, any logic to that statement. Um, and there's also another appeal in there. And what's that? Do you guys? It's another logical. Well, the one where the people, <laughs> thousands of people like you. Yeah. What's, what, what so is it? What's that one popularity? called? Yeah, appeal to popularity. You know, it's kind of like a peer pressure kind of logical fallacy. And then it's also just anecdotal evidence. Like, yeah. Yeah, thousands of people were healed. Well, okay. Yeah, it's Do you an, have any an, an appeal to anecdote. To let, and finally, sure, they shut down his clinic and boarded up his windows, but no one can stop this great man's passion and mission. He is alive and well, and his voice is still loud and clear at Natural Healing Publications. I read his newsletter, by the way. His newsletter is basically just a series of ads for his products. <laughs> um, so there is kind of like an, an appeal to persecution. You know, it's like this poor guy is being persecuted by the powers that be. So again, he must be, he must be right. I never, I never heard of that one. Appeal to persecution. Are you making, oh, yeah, are you it, making it, these up, Steve? <laughs> it's, these are all, if you read, read my article on it, and there are lots of subsets underneath specific logical <laughs> yeah, fallacies. I know, I know. So you, you, can, you, you, know, you, can make, you can make keep making up more and more. I mean, they're basically just, again, this guy has some kind of virtue, that is, and that's why his claims are correct. Whether it's that he is humble, that he is being persecuted by the evil people, that his knowledge comes from God, whatever. Those are all th- reasons why we should believe him. Bob, you didn't hear uh, the other day Steve... Said, yeah, that's the banana fofana fanological fallacy, and that, that's when I realized he was making them up. <laughs> I just I make them up off the top of my head. So, Steve, the link you yeah. sent me for Doctor Scholl's whatever this guy's name is. Yeah. Did you see that gigantic warning on there? Yes. What's that about? That's about um, sort of following the letter of the law by by saying you can't sue me because I'm warning you up front not to take my advice. Oh my god. But he's god. basically saying, but I'm being forced to warn you not to take my advice by the big powerful, you know, you know, powers that don't want me to cure you of all your diseases, you know, with my fabulous products. Kind so of he's kind of trying to have it both ways. <laughs> so wow. if you sue him, he's like, "Well, I warned you that you shouldn't believe me." It's right there on my the, the front of my website. <laughs> well, so the, the, he didn't get, you know, there wasn't like uh from on high, you have to put this warning on here because you're such a quack. It's a legal thing. Okay. Of course, yeah. They all I don't do know it. if, it, if it. it's can't yeah. make cure claims. You know, it's it's how they run around. How they Actually, only hide. only a, a study published about two years ago, I believe in JAMA, looked at the claims of um, supplements. Which in this country, you can make supplement claims, um, so, so-called structure function claims, as long as you put a disclaimer on there saying these claims have not been reviewed by the FDA. And only fifty percent of websites hawking such snake oils complied to the law. So 50% you know didn't broke the law in that they did not have the disclaimer or they made claims they weren't allowed to make. Uh, let, let's so, hope that the Supplement Safety Act act one of these days gets passed in Congress. Right, I doubt it. Right. It's some, been languishing some, for years. Yeah, some reasonable version of it. Yeah. Okay, well we got just enough time for a science or fiction. It's time for science Fiction. Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two genuine, one fictitious, and then I challenge my skeptics to figure out if they could figure out which one is the fake. So again, two are real and one is fake. Is everyone ready? Yep. Yeah. Okay. Recently, a study has proven that hypnotherapy 
improves the quality of life for people with irritable bowel syndrome. Number two, astronomers have discovered a previously unknown third moon orbiting Mars. And item number three, researchers have identified and traced the origin of a gene for altruism. Jay, why don't you go first? Okay, um, number one, I, I remember reading about that. I, I know it's true. Um, number three, uh, I don't remember reading anything about that, but it seems plausible to me. I don't think that there could be a moon that we haven't discovered around Mars at this point. So I'm going to say number two is false. All righty. Perry? You know, number three obviously is false. A gene <laughs> for altruism? That's crazy. No, that's, uh, that one's false. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you defy me again, Rebecca. <laughs> oh, man. Um, <clears throat> I think... Steve's crafty. Don't forget. <clears throat> Steve is a crafty fellow. <laughs> Um, I agree that number one is definitely true. I think I'm going to go with the moon thing being false. I don't remember reading anything about that. Okay, Bob. <laughs> yeah, I'm su- I'm surprised if two is true with the third moon of Mars, and I I didn't hear about it. Uh, I'd be a little bit surprised. But three seems even less plausible than two. Of course. Um, I mean, a gene, I mean, one gene, that's like having, it's almost like one gene for being smart. It's just the interplay of many genes, and I would think altruism would be the same way. So I'm going to go with three and be a little bit surprised that there is a third moon of Mars that I didn't hear about. Okay. So we got two think that the altruism gene is fake and two think that the new, the third moon of Mars is fake. But everyone agrees that hypnotherapy improves the quality of life for people with irritable bowel syndrome. So let's start with that one. That is true. A new study published shows that uh, patients with irritable bowel syndrome it had improved quality of life when they were treated with both um, cognitive therapy and hypnotherapy. Uh, now, the interesting thing about irritable bowel syndrome, that's one of those syndromes, it's a little controversial. You know, is it really a physiological syndrome or is it really a psychological syndrome? Um, some people think that it's really just, some people manifest their stress with bowel symptoms. Other people think that it's, you know, an actual physiological disorder. Well, and, you know, Adriana had it on The Sopranos. So. Yeah. You know, I have to say personally, I mean, I think that it, it could certainly be one of those things that's real, but ends up getting diagnosed in a lot of people who just have anxiety, basically. Um, it certainly seems to be one of those diagnoses that can, tends to get attached to people who have a lot of psychological stress. Now, Steve, you mentioned um, that uh, hypnotherapy was used in conjunction with cognitive therapy. What is cognitive therapy? It's a, uh, a standard therapy technique. Um, it basically gets people to think about things differently. It's, it's basically it's, it's, it's a counseling technique. Steve, there is definitely a stress connection to uh, to uh, irritable bowel, irritable yeah, bowel there, there, syndrome. There's no question that there's a stress connection. The question is, is it stress just triggering an underlying disorder, or is it all stress? Is stress just all you need to have irritable bowel syndrome? So it just so remains a little controversial for that reason. And hypnotherapy is also a little bit controversial as well. Exactly what is hypnotherapy, and does it really have any you know validity? So it's kind of you know two controversial things. When I was a, uh, a young person, uh, I guess, let's see, now I must have been high school, I guess, I guess when I was a teenager, my mother took me to a hypnotist, guy who, you know, opened shop 
five doors down from where we lived. And, uh, you know, that guy used to, to hip, quote unquote, hypnotize me when I went there. I ne- I played along. I was never hypnotized. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was never hypnotized. And that's the point is how do you know? Steve, what about well, all those things? You know, you ever see those little videos on the Internet where they, the guy puts 20 people into a trance and they all act retarded? Yeah, and all well, that. yeah that's generally just... Um, it's just play acting. It's like everybody... Yeah. drunk people? We, well, it, yeah, I mean, it's it's basically you, you get people up on the stage who want to be there and they want an excuse to let go of their inhibitions and do crazy stuff. And so the hypnotist just gives them permission to do that. That's one hypothesis, which is certainly consistent with all the evidence. Well, it's it's less a hypothesis and it's more just what the hip, what stage hypnotists do. Um, yeah, <laughs> I mean, you can call it a hypothesis, but the people who are actually doing it admit that that's what they're doing. Well, right. I mean, I've t- I've talked to a few people that have done it, and they they said that yeah, that that was real. I really, I really, that really happened, and they weren't just playing along with it. I mean, I, I think, I mean, I, I'm not up on the latest uh, the latest thoughts on this, but um, I mean, isn't there? I mean, can't aren't some people more? You know, can't they put themselves into a more of a suggestible state than other people and can really kind of go with the flow and really believe what's happening? And, and not sure, but I mean, what is that? What does it mean to be in a suggestible right. state? Right. You know, it just means they do what they think they're supposed to do. And the, you know, again, it's, it's there's no objective way to measure the level of insight they have into you know why they're doing what they're doing. Well, I'm telling you, for me, it was nonsense. So, w- two of you thought that the altruism gene was fake. That was Bob and Perry. Uh, yeah, and this one is true. No, it's uh-huh. not. Yes, no. it is. No, it's not. Oh, no. it's good argument, Perry. So if I can, <laughs> why would it be a Perry? Why would it be nonsense? There must be a gene for every everything that goes on in our no, mind. Oh, Jay, we have to the, inter, the interplay of it's a lot. I mean, you think there's one gene for intelligence? It's an interplay of many, many genes, and that's true for a lot of yeah. I know that, but. But uh, I'm surprised. I'm very surprised. Well, go ahead, Steve. Explain it. And before I stick my foot in my mouth. Well, I didn't say it was in humans. Uh, <laughs> nonsense. Now, hey, but this is the researchers trace origin of an altruism gene. So this is, you know, for the first time, you know, scientists say that they have traced the origin of an altruism gene, possibly shedding light on the nagging mystery of how generosity and cooperation evolved. They're, they were looking at a, at a fairly primitive uh, multi-celled creature um, called Volvox. And which so, but it does engage in behavior, and that behavior can involve, you know, helping out its fellows. And they were able to trace the gene for that and and identify its evolutionary, you know, lineage, basically. Wait, so they tested altruism in a multicellular creature? <laughs> yes. Um, it has division of labor. Um, so the, the the behavior they're looking at is whether or not they would forego reproducing themselves in order to take on jobs for the group. And they were able to trace the gene that would affect their behavior so that they would basically forego self-replication in order to... Well, Steve, would you really call that altruism? Well, that's, I mean, that's, that's actually the, the, the definition of altruism is that, you know, you do something which sacrifices your own... Darwinian fitness in order to for your you know, relatives to survive. Oh, okay, more. all right, all right. Then I wow, I le- I learned something tonight. So yeah, but you're you're right that in humans there's probably more than one gene that influences that behavior. You know, because I, I I guess when I thought of altruism, I was thinking of it as um, definitely in the human sense. That was obviously your your trick here, but 
Couldn't w- wouldn't you think that some of characteristics that people have would be gene related? I think all personality characteristics are gene related, but probably not a single gene. I mean, there may there may not be a single there gene. may be. I mean, some, some things gene. may okay. you know. There's certainly brain related. You do injury to your brain, you'll change your personality often. Yeah, like that, <laughs> like that guy that got the spike through his brain, and then he ended up being Phineas crazy. Gage. Phineas Gage, yeah, yeah. good one. Had a, kind of a that poor dude. I saw a video on that. What an awful thing, right? <laughs> he was lobotomized. Uh, I think that personality basically is genetic. I think the evidence pretty much supports that. Basic personality traits. So that means that the astronomers have discovered a previously unknown third moon orbiting Mars is fake. Uh, one I made up. Not totally implausible. Yeah, you probably would have heard about it. Um, but, you know, the, the Mars could have very tiny, captured, you know, asteroid-like moons, and uh, it's, it's plausible that we might have missed a really small one. But, no, not that likely. So that, would, that, would, that one was fake. So what's this? This is like the fifth week in a row or something that I've won. Yeah, you got, you're on a, you're really on a lucky amazing. streak. <laughs> We're shocked. Lucky? <laughs> We're skeptics. We don't believe you. You heard me. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're doing, you're doing very I well. I think that it might <laughs> be you, more genetically based. You, know. you think so? <laughs> <laughs> um, I actually had much more challenging ones all teed up for this week, and I accidentally sent them to Rebecca so she saw them. But I but made them anyway, so sure I still would have won. Maybe we'll, we'll put those on the website. We Actually, we're thinking of having some special science or fiction segments just for the website. But So as soon as Jay can actually get to the good those web pages set up. Maybe we'll start doing that. Well, that's our show for this week. Guys, thanks for joining me again. Thank you, Steve. Thanks, Steve. A lot of fun. Yep. Good times. Uh, we, coming up in yeah, a definitely. couple of weeks is um, Steve Mursky. Steve is writes the anti-gravity column for Scientific American and is the host of the science podcast, the podcast of, the, of Scientific American, which is usually... It's one of the number one, if not the number one, science podcasts out there. And he's going to talk to us uh, about his adventures in science recently. Awesome. And next week, we have Phil Plate on the show. Phil Plate is the bad astronomer. So keep an eye out for him next week. And to everyone else out there, again, uh, sign in to our, or to our forums. We want to hear from you. you know, we want to engage in conversation with you on the message board. Keep sending us uh, your emails and your feedback. We always like to see it. Well, until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by the New England Skeptical Society. For information on this and other podcasts, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. Please send us your questions, suggestions, and other feedback. You can use the Contact Us page on our website, or you can send us an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. Theorem is produced by Kinetto and is used with permission. Problems, proofs, endless delays.